Well, good morning slash almost afternoon. Uh, my name is David Bailey. I am the executive director of Arabon. Uh, we are a ministry partner of Third, and we're very grateful uh, for this partnership. Um, this is one of my favorite times of the year in our ministry is when we get a chance to invest in young people between the ages of 18 to 25, to give them theology, some imagination of what's possible, uh, some understanding of reconciliation. And instead of writing a paper, what they do is they write beautiful songs like what they just wrote. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Give me a hand. You know, if you would, um, in the bulletin on page 19, I want you to check this out and make sure you don't throw it away uh, the bulletin today. Um, because um, on Saturday, July 28th at 7 p.m., in the Fellowship Hall, there's going to be a, a gala uh, to raise money to support the work of the internship. And um, this is a really great time uh, of the year because you get a chance to see the intern, see what's happening. Um, it's a big challenge because a lot of people go on vacation. And so um, if you're out of town and you can't make it to the gala, you always can mail a check. I just want to let you know that. So <laughs> uh, let, let us um, turn our attention to uh, the text that we will be spending some time in today. Um, Exodus 21 through 2 and verse 17 reads as this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we just pray for illumination, the revelation of your word. Pray, Lord, that you would um, give us open ears and hearts and minds to hear what it is that you're saying. I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, amen. amen. So um, I have a sister that's two years younger than me, um, and her name is Lori Ruffin. And um, we grew up in this era where um, people had one TV. I know that's a long time ago. People don't remember that these days. But it was one TV, and we had to learn how to, like, share the television or what was watched on TV. Um, and Lori, who used to like this TV show called Full House, and um, one of the things that I found that was kind of interesting about Full House was one of the characters was played by these two girls, uh, uh, the Olsen twins, who are actually... Um, identical twins. And what's really fascinating about identical twins is that they actually share the same DNA. But what's really interesting is that they don't have the same fingerprints. And so, like, no two people have the same fingerprints. And I was checking out this rabbi, and this rabbi was uh, I'm also saying that people just not only have the same fingerprints, but people also don't have the same soul prints. Their imaginations are very different. Like we all have different imaginations of possibilities and different desires. 
This is something that God has given us to kind of, as he's locked his image in each one of us, it's a uniqueness that God has given to each one of us that has a bit of uniqueness in our desires. And, um, you know, God wants us to use the desires for his purposes, for flourishing. But when you're a slave, you don't get a chance to express your soul print, your unique desires. It's important to understand that this is the context of the text that we are in today um, because, you know, it's, it's easy to extract the Ten Commandments and just make that about a personal way of living. But to be influenced by the thoughts of um, John Stott's disciple, Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God's People, he points out that a faithful understanding of Exodus is to not just say that Exodus is about a spiritual deliverance, but it is about a political and an economic and a social deliverance because this happened to real people that were under real political oppression, real economic oppression, real social oppression, and of course, yes, real spiritual oppression. So to read the text in any other kind of way is to not faithfully read the text. And so with that in mind, let's reread uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. See, with God reminding uh, the people of God, Israel, that he is the God that brought them out of slavery, he is reminding them of the story that he wants them to remember. He wants to remind them that their great, 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 great grandfather Joseph found favor with Israel, and his family was a large family that um, came during a time of drought, and, and Pharaoh gave some hospitality to Joseph's family. He gave them a piece of land for them to cultivate, for them to learn how to flourish. Um, and um, they grew, and they grew um, until we opened up an Exodus, and they grew into a great nation. They grew into a great nation, and so many people uh, um, that were Israelites were there that the, the, the Scriptures kind of opened up with this idea that there was a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he got intimidated by the amount of people who were not from Egypt. Um, and so he decided to renegotiate the immigration policies of Egypt. And his immigration policies got a lot more oppressive. It was a lot more Egypt interests. And it was intolerable for the Israelites, the people of God. And so the people of God called out to God, and God delivered them from the oppression. Now, it's really important to understand that the people of God weren't formed in power and privilege. They were formed in oppression. And the reason why this is important, because God thought it was important. He said, hey, I don't want you to forget that you were once immigrants in Egypt, and they didn't show you hospitality. Matter of fact, it took advantage of you. And I also want to remember that you were once economically vulnerable because when I put you into the land of the promised land, I don't want you to forget 
that you were once immigrants and you were once economically vulnerable. So here are three dominant thoughts that God articulates in Exodus and points all the way out through the rest of Scripture. God gives these dominant themes in Exodus that goes all the way out through Scriptures by telling the people, said, number one, don't take on the ways of Pharaoh. Number two, he says, don't seek the power of Pharaoh. And then number three, he says, seek the flourishing of your neighbors. Let me read it one more time. Don't take on the ways of Pharaoh. Don't seek the power of Pharaoh. Seek the flourishing of your neighbors. See, if you go and reread, we don't have the time to do this, but if you go back and reread um, uh, um, the Ten Commandments, you'll uh, see that the idea of not taking on the ways of Pharaoh, not seeking the power of Pharaoh, and even seeking the flourishing of the neighbor uh, um, is themes within this text. And, you know, when you understand the context of the text and that, that slavery is a part of this, it makes a total sense why God would say don't take on the ways of, of Pharaoh and, and, uh, um, and, and don't uh, seek the power of Pharaoh. But this whole thing of neighbors doesn't make sense naturally. It's like, where does that come from? But the last two commandments, commandments 9 and 10, are specifically neighboring commandments. It says, you shall not covet, in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and his male and female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So it's important for us to understand this word neighbor is really the word desire. I'm sorry, this word covet is really this word desire. And we got to understand that desire is a gift from God. This is particularly really important for folks who uh, are from a Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinistic kind of perspective because in um, the five points of Calvinism, this whole idea of tulip, the total depravity of humanity, when you kind of just take that to its extreme, you know, folks just say, man, you know, there's no good desires that we have, or we can't trust our desires, or, you know, we, we just, uh, uh, desires isn't a good thing. But no, God has given us desires for a reason. And God wants to use those desires uh, for his purposes. And so, what's the difference between uh, uh, um, covetousness and just a good desire? Well, you can have bad desires for bad things, but covetousness actually could actually, you could covet good things. What covetousness is really, the sin is really the sin of greed. It's desire gone bad. It's, another way of thinking about this is like undisciplined desire is greed. And so what's, what's interesting is that the way that the sin of covetousness is framed is very similar to the way that the sin of stealing is framed. And in order to steal, you have to covet. You have to, like, desire something that is not yours. But you can covet and not steal. 
So you can look at your neighbor's things and you can um, have an undisciplined desire that goes unchecked and it can turn into greed and you can begin to accumulate more and more and more. And then uh, um, you began to take on the ways of Pharaoh and you began to seek the power of Pharaoh. And then you um, end up stop seeking the flourishing of your neighbor because you're in competition with him or her. And you can do all of this without committing a crime. Our whole advertising industry is built on the cultivation of undisciplined desire. Man, I thought I would have got one amen. If I was in the Baptist church, we could have got that. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's all right. Let me just get a Presbyterian, hmm, you know, like that'd be good. <laughs> but this is all called covetousness. And what God has called evil, the world has called it's the air that we breathe. It's the ground that we walk on. It's, it's just hard for us to see it in our culture. Now, when they, they asked me to, um, when they asked me to, to preach, they said they just don't only preach about covetousness, but what is the American idol that is, is, is uh, connected to this commandment? And it was very easy for me to see a connection with the American dream. But then as I began to uh, 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 look into this, meditate on this, I realized it was a lot deeper than even I just expected. And so in order for me to kind of help to understand the context of our culture, I have to take a little bit of time to go through some of the history of economics. And um, here's my question. I mean, here's my, here's my thing. I'm going to extend some grace to you to not to preach for an hour. I would like you to extend some grace to me um, to realize there's a lot that I have to leave out. And so please don't make assumptions of my economic or political beliefs because of what I don't say. And don't dismiss what I'm saying because of what I don't say. Because at this point, the whole point of this is to help to understand our cultural context so that we can be more faithful as the people of God. So let's begin to explore this. Um, the modern-day understanding of the American dream, I mean, there's been pieces that you could evolve from, but the most modern-day um, example of the American dream, the kind of our idea of this comes from James Truslow Adams in his 1931 book called American Epic. And I want to read an excerpt from this book. He says, the American dream, that dream of land, in which life shall be better and richer and fuller for every man with opportunity for each according to his ability and achievement. It is a difficult dream for the European upper classes to interpret adequately and to many of us ourselves um, have grown weary and mistrustful of it. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. To understand this, this text uh, that this brother James Adams uh, wrote, you got to understand that the 
ideas of kind of our modern economic system has roots in the economic system of feudalism. This idea of feudalism, um, basically there was a ruling class, a wealthy class called the aristocracy. And you had rich people and you had poor people. And what would make you rich really quick is if you had land that you were able to maintain and keep your land. And then if you didn't have land, it was very easy to be very poor and very vulnerable. Now, when you have haves and haves nots and extremes, then the um, ability for violence to happen. And so the aristocracy, in essence, kind of needed, they wanted to protect theirs. Because when you have a lot, you want to protect your stuff. And so what they did was they would, um, it was a very uh, uh, land lot uh, kind, kind of space, grounded to the land. And what they would do is they would give lots and plots of land to people who would protect them from uh, uh, violence and it was a form of kind of almost like governing through military by providing uh, land for different folks. Now, this uh, um, happened and it kind of gave people who were at the bottom a vision of like what it was like to be up front in this aristocracy. You see hints of this aristocracy in uh, um, um, Adam's view of the American dream. Now, as technology increased and the ability to trade across the water increased, it started an era of mercantilism. And this trading of mercantilism uh, um, began uh, to happen and it was able to increase some uh, uh, wealth from folks. But as ships began to distance further areas, you know, it was a guy like named Christopher Columbus that actually went to what he called a new world and discovered a new world. And I just got to make a point. You can't discover something when people already exist there. <laughs> okay? But for the sake of discussion, we'll use the term discovery. So it's new to them that this called this new world. And what's important to understand is, one, these are Christians, people who are named in the name of Jesus, they discover some lands, and they one see things. They thought that Europe was this big, but then they realized, that, and they thought the world was this big, but they realized the world was way bigger than was expected. And they were intimidated by it. They were kind of scared of it. And not only were they scared of uh, um, how the vast of the land, they encountered people that they'd never seen and didn't have categories for and then they had some animals that they never seen. And so imagine how scary it is to see an armadillo for the first time. <laughs> if you want to unpack some of these ideas, um, there's a book called Christian Imagination by James Willing Jennings that really unpacks some of this. But here's some of the thoughts that uh, um, he, in essence, has uh, unpacked. He, he basically is sharing that there are two governing emotions that happen to these Christian brothers and sisters as they engage in the world. The first one is fear, and the other one is greed. There are three people that basically form this new world. You have the missionary, the merchant, and the soldier. The missionary, the merchant, and the soldier. Um, you could, again, do your study and, and read some of the first-hand accounts of this, but to understand these different vocations and how they play to recreate the new world, uh, um, I'll just kind of give a quick little summary. And 
as the, the missionary's role, the best summary I've ever heard is a quote by Desmond Tutu that helps you understand the role of the missionary as it relates to the economy of both the Africans and the indigenous people. He says, when the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes and when we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. That was the role of the missionary. The merchants engaged in trade, but when they engaged in trade, they began to trade two items that was purposely designed to dismantle the social fabric of the community, and this was rums and guns. They gave alcohol and they gave guns to dismantle the fabric of that society so that then at that point, uh, it's easier to enslave folks. And then for people who did not, uh, uh, were not persuaded by the missionaries and the folks that were not persuaded by the merchants, the rums and guns, you had soldiers who would be able to do the bidding of the crown. And so as technology began to increase from the merchantilism, uh, uh, there ended up being what they call the Industrial Revolution. And this, um, by the time that uh, Adam Smith was uh, writing his books in 1776, The Wealth of Nations, he kind of is the first folks to kind of like get this idea of capitalism. And in the era of Adam Smith, it's important for us to understand three things about capitalism. The wealth of the nations that was being built, it was being built on stolen land. The second thing is that the capital that was uh, 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 being used that was building nations was actually enslaved Africans. That was the capital. And then both the stealing of the land and the labor was done under the guise of Christian love and duty. The stealing of land, the stealing of labor, of human flesh was done on the guise of Christian love and duty. So it's, it's, I want to make this clear that like the conquest of land and the conquest of uh, people and enslavement of people is not new. It's been around since humanity. But what is challenging about this particular time is that it's done under the guise of Christian love and duty. And the merchant and the missionary and the soldier were all working together to exploit people. And this perversion of Christianity um, gave birth to some problematic situations in our community that we're dealing with today. I mean, one of the obvious things is that the Bible is really clear that all people, all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And so in order um, to enslave people, um, you had missionaries and theologians that had to create a racial hierarchy to justify the enslavement of people. But then there's another part to it where the church began to say that it was okay and sanction the exploitation of human beings as long as they were being productive. And this over time has turned our understanding of human beings into human resources. And so today, we live in a culture where it doesn't matter if you are a corporate lawyer 
or if you're a migrant farm worker, your value is only as good as how productive you are. And now we have reduced people from the holistic of being a human being to being a human doing slash a human production system slash a human resource. Now, if we are honest with our history, then we have to realize the economic foundation of our country has been built on the violation of the Tenth Commandment. This is the foundation of which it has been laid. And so when James uh, Truslow Adams articulates this American dream, it's in 1931. And we also have to keep in mind that uh, um, this is Jim Crow. And so you don't have a, a, a huge group of people of African Americans and even uh, um, some immigrants that were categorized uh, in certain ways did not have access to pursue the American dream for another 30 to 40, 50 years from when he was right. So for example, remember the show, Cosby Show? The Huxtable family, a doctor and lawyer, could not buy a house in New York with a brown store next to white people until the 80s. That wasn't a possibility. So his vision of aristocracy lifestyle is connected to a secular enlightenment ideal of self-reliance that is in opposition to the biblical vision of Christian community and interdependence. He also has a hint of Darwinian survival of the fittest, which is in opposition of the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave us to love our neighbor as ourselves. See, when we, 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 we kind of like continue to unravel the, the layers of, of the American dream and our economic history, whether it's feudalism, mercantilism, capitalism, uh, the American dream, every economic vision falls short of the kingdom of God because it's rooted in an illusion of sovereignty. That at some point we could have enough where we don't have to be dependent on others. That we don't have to be vulnerable. It's a vision that some uh, uh, point that, like that, 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 that we are trying to avoid dependency. We should be reminded again of what God told Israel. He said, don't take the ways of Pharaoh and don't seek the power of Pharaoh. In essence, Pharaoh was operating under an illusion of sovereignty. And God says, seek the flourishing of your neighbor. So, if we find this very difficult, like we haven't done this well, the good thing about this is that we are actually in good company. The reason why we're in good company is because the Israelites had the same struggle. In Exodus, God said, hey, remember that you were enslaved and, you know, do these things. And I'm going to put you in a promised land, so don't take the ways of Pharaoh into the promised land. Uh, don't seek the power of Pharaoh. Uh, um, begin to seek, like, love your neighbor. Seek the flourishing of your neighbor. And what uh, they do when they get to the promised land, they, you know, they're vulnerable. And, and, and they have to depend on God. And they say, you know, we don't want to do that. We're not going to, like, we're going to take on the ways of Pharaoh, but we're going to rebrand it. We're going to call it the king. So they ask for a king. And he says, hey, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The king is going to exploit you. And the, the king 
started to do the exploitation, and God had to judge them. And he sent the Syrians, and then he sent the Babylonians. And ultimately, when he came to Jesus, he sent the Roman uh, government. And Jesus came in an era as a Jewish man that was similar to the Jim Crow era. And so his disciples, being really great Jewish boys, um, they understood uh, what was uh, going on. And, um, and, and when Jesus was killed by the Roman government and resurrected from the dead, they uh, um, said, hey, you're a really popular, like you're the Messiah. And I know that you're supposed to like uh, help us politically, socially, economically, and spiritually. So this is what we read in um, Acts 1, 6 through 8. It says, then the disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Another question of what they were asking was, God, Jesus, when are you going to make Israel great again? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, brothers and sisters, what we have to realize is that they were asking for power, for self-interest, and not just only for self-interest, but for self-interest power over others. And so God says, I know that you're human. I can't even explain it to you. You just, you just kind of, just listen to me. Go to Jerusalem and put yourself in a vulnerable position of prayer. And when you get to Jerusalem and put yourself in a vulnerable position of prayer, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. And what he did uh, was those 120 folks that were there, the Holy Spirit came in and they began to speak their own languages and understand one another. So what God was giving them the power to do was giving them the power to understand how to love their neighbor and seek to flourish in their neighbor within their own language and cultural context. And you see that the Holy Spirit began to do that. People came to faith that day. But what's also important is that they started to live in community and in love uh, with one another. And this is the first time that you see that they're able to live out as the people of God, the 10th commandment. We see all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. These brothers and sisters were seeking the flourishing of their neighbor. They were loving their neighbors as themselves. See, when we get into the story of Acts, we are seeing that this is a story where the people of God are learning how to give themselves vulnerably over to the work of the Holy Spirit to teach them how to love their neighbor. Sometimes the neighbor started out in Jerusalem, and then it expanded to Judea. And then they end up talking uh, to some folks who were Samaritans who they were taught all their lives to fear and to even hate but the Holy Spirit had them lean more into that because why? The only way to solve generosity, I mean, uh, the only way to solve greed is through generosity. And not a generosity which you're in control of, a generosity that you're doing out of duty. It's a generosity that is submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit 
in ways that we aren't in control of. If you see the book of Acts, people weren't in control. They weren't a whole lot of committees, two kind of committee meetings out of the whole book of Acts. And they were just trying to keep up with what God was doing. We have to be people that are submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be delivered from the idol and the tyranny of mammon that is also God's is the American dream. Let us pray. Well, we just, we, we want your kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. And it just doesn't happen abstract. It happens through the church. And so, Lord, our whole economic system, whether we have a bias towards capitalism, we have a bias towards Marxism, none of it is the kingdom of God. And, Lord, we, 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 need, we need you to show us how to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the only economic system that's the hope for the world. So, Lord, I pray just however you want us to embody this, that you will lead and guide us um, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.